Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends, so thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lemire. Do you ever wonder if life is just a series of hoops we have to jump through? How much of our lives do we spend focusing on money and making sure we don't end up as a failure? And why is it so rare to find people who can lead their own path and easily adapt to the changes in our world? If you're one of those guys who's struggling to find what has you feel alive, what has you feel passionate, it's probably because you've forgotten how to truly play. Dr. Peter Gray is a research professor at Boston College and he studies play. Today, we're gonna find out how play is the key to leadership, innovative thinking, problem solving, and doing what has us feel alive. We're also gonna talk about why this highly structured competitive environment that's meant to give us an advantage is actually making us weaker, depressed, and breeding us to become robots. Welcome to The New Man. Today we're talking with Peter Gray. He's a developmental psychologist, research professor of psychology at Boston College, and he's also the author of Free to Learn. Peter, thank you so much for talking today. Glad to be here. Right on. I, uh, you've spent so much of your career studying what helps young people, children, develop, and in, in, in particularly around the concept of play. Now, as I was writing my book, I came across your work and I saw how many parallels there were in the problems that you see with the young people that are coming up and moving into adulthood. But I'm seeing those parallels in guys that are already adults and they're trying to make transitions in their own lives. And so I was real that's why I wanted to have you on today. Not necessarily to talk about young people, but maybe how we were shaped and formed uh, and how that's impacted how we're solving and, and approaching our problems today. Um, one of the problems that that guys that I'm talking to, they're frustrated. They're, they dread their work. They feel trapped or drained or stressed or bored. They feel this obligation and this pressure to always be doing what they do. There's no, you know, play is something or enjoyment is something that's out there on the other side of completing some task or jumping through some hoop. And they want to do something that has them feel alive. They want to do something that has them feel invigorated, but they have no idea what that might be. And so as I was watching your videos and reading your book, it helped me to see that we've We've probably been deprogrammed 
to to follow what invigorates us. In other words, we we never figured out we, we were never encouraged to figure out what invigorates us. So it, it makes sense that we might end up in our twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, and be like, "Yeah, I have no idea where my what what, what actually has me feel more alive." Um, so I'm curious if, if 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 that's a possibility from from your perspective in your in your work that you've done. Yeah, that's a that's a great challenge to relate uh, the work I've done to the kinds of problems you're talking about. Let me start by saying that I'm I'm certainly interested in the role of play in children's development. Um, and uh, some of my research, though, has actually been with young adults, and it's been with adults who have uh, not gone to conventional school. Instead of growing up in our restrictive school system, where play is a waste of time, play is recess, of which children today have less of it than they did when I was a child, much less of it, where even when you're not in school, you are put very frequently into adult-directed lessons of one sort or another, including adult-directed sports, which are really like an extension of school. I'm not saying this is a bad thing necessarily, but when this becomes the exclusive thing that you're doing growing up, you are your, your innate ability to play, your innate love of play, your innate ways of discovering your passions and joy through play gets squashed out. And that's been happening for a long time in our society. What I've been writing about is it's happening now more than ever because children have less opportunity to play now than they did in the past. But it's been happening for a long time. So what happens is you know, you go through you go through school. You go through. You're getting all these lessons, all these all these uh, messages about having to go through the next hoop. Life becomes a series of hoops that you've got to go through, which are not necessarily meaningful to you, right? I mean, you've got to you've got to learn the kindergarten stuff so you can do first grade. <laughs> then you've got to learn the first grade stuff so you can do second grade. Ultimately, you've got to do well in high school so you can get into college and then maybe from college to graduate school. And then by that time, you go on to some kind of a job that you think you can get. You haven't had any opportunity to figure out what you really love to do. And you've been oriented towards a kind of um, because all of this training is sort of competitive all through school. The aim is to do better than other people, get the highest grade of the class, be, you know, whatever it is. Right. And if, if you fall into that pattern, then you are not taking the time to figure out what do I really want to do? What do I want to do? You're thinking of what if I, what do these other people want me to do so I can get the highest grade, get into the most prestigious college, get the most prestigious and well-paying job because that's now the substitute for the grade when I'm grown up. That's, that's the measure of my worth now in other people's eyes. And when you stop and think about what is it that I really want? What is it that is meaningful to me? What would be fun to me? And so the, uh, so I think that there's a, that, that there is a very clear relationship between the work that I'm doing with children on how play is the vehicle through which children learn what they love to do and develop a different attitude of life because play play is not competitive. 
you know, children don't naturally play competitively. I watch children play when there's no adults around. Even when they're playing a pseudo-competitive game, they're not playing it competitively. They're playing it to have fun. They're playing it in such a way that the better player self-handicaps is the competitive game. They're playing it in such a way. Because the, the most important thing in play is that you keep your playmates happy as well as yourself. Because if you don't keep your playmate happy, they'll quit right? So play can't be competitive. Play has to always be cooperative. And boy, cooperation is a lot more fun and a lot more relaxing than competition. And it turns out, you know, we think we live in this highly competitive society and it's so important to learn how to compete and be number one and all of that. We give a lot, especially men, you know, give a lot of lip service to that. We're taught that. We're one of the reasons parents put their kids into competitive sports is so they'll learn how to compete. They'll learn how to try to be number one and so on. We hear that all the time. But the truth of the matter is, even in our capitalist world today, the people who are truly successful in the sense of being able to support themselves, not necessarily the most rich, but being able to support themselves and their family and having a good time in life and a meaningful time in life are people who know how to cooperate. People whose orientation is not, I'm going to beat other people, but I'm going to help other people. And you know, it turns out that when you help other people, then other people want to help you, right? And yeah. they care about you. And there's almost nothing more important to happiness than being cared about by other people. And um, well, let me interrupt you because there's, there's you, you, you've hit on so many gold nuggets here. I want to unpack a few because yeah. they're, they're great. Um, so I, you know, I can imagine this whole idea of just growing up without that structure and without that. Here's what you do next, and here's what you do next, and here's what you do next. Like if we've been programmed to look for that, we're, we've essentially been programmed to look to external authority and say, "Tell me what to do," instead of find our own internal leadership and say, hey, here's what I want. When I talk to guys and they, they, they paint this picture of a successful guy, it's this idea of the guy that goes and creates his own life, not the guy that's really good at jumping through hoops and impressing other people. Right. And yeah. it's also, as I talk to guys as they get older, they're looking, I want more meaning. I want more meaning in my life. I want more meaning. Well, meaning comes from helping others. Meaning comes from building other people up. But if we've been trained to make our own way by stepping on others and diminishing others through competition, we miss out on that opportunity to have the reward of meaning. So there's something inherent in how some parts of, of the way that we've been brought up are getting in the way of us enjoying what's inherently right there. It's just, it's, we get in the way of it happening. It sounds like that's what's, what's going on. And the other thing I want to um, talk about here is that it, it teaches us this, this, conventional way of schooling and upbringing, uh, it seems to teach us to be better followers. It teaches us to be better factory workers. And uh, instead of how to actually lead our own lives and to have our own sense of authority. And that's where, this is where I want to unpack play, because like you said, pay, play is a waste of time to a lot of people. So when, in, when you talk about play, let's define that. What is play from your standpoint as a researcher and when, when you look at it and right. you see play? Right. Yeah. First of all, let me say that play, especially when we're talking about adults, I, I think of play as not all or none. And in some sense, therefore, a better term would be playful, a playful activity. The activity can be more or less playful. When I'm talking about children's play, 
I define play as having um, four characteristics, and let me tell you what they are, and then a playful activity is playful to the degree it has these characteristics. The first characteristic is that it's self-chosen and self-governed. If a child is doing something that an adult is directing, a child is doing something that some adult authority figure is telling them to do, and even if, even if it's fun, even if it's fun, it's not play if the direction is coming from somebody else. So because play, one of the things that people, children learn in play is how to choose their own activity so, and how to direct their own activity. So if you're, I, I make the contrast between um, an old-fashioned pickup game of anything, baseball, let's say, because that's what I played as a kid all the time. Mm-hmm. You go out to the vacant lot and there's a bunch of other kids there. And all you know is you want to play baseball, but there's, you know, there's not going to be 18 kids there. There's not a manicured field. There's no coaches. There's no umpire. You create that game. Mm-hmm. And you are creating it collaboratively with the other people there. You're choosing up sides. You're creating the ground rules. There's, you know, there's windows on one side. You can't any automatic out if you bat it in the direction where the windows are. Yep. If you hit it out into that busy street on the other side, automatic out. So you've got to place your hits. Uh, you've got some big, strong guys who are 15 and, and uh, look like they're 25, and they, they can clobber the ball. And then you've got little Timmy, who's about eight and is a novice. You, how are you going to have fun with all of this mix and create a, You create this game. You pitch softly to little Timmy. You pitch big, that big 15-year-old has to bat left-handed with a broomstick. You are figuring out in this context how to have fun. You are learning the skills of getting along with other people. You have to keep – it's just as important that you keep the people on the other team happy as your team because if, if the people on the other team quit because they're not, not having fun, the game no is game. over, yeah. right? So contrast that to the Little League game. So in the little league game, it's all organized by adults. It's on a manicured field. You don't have to create any of the ground rules. That's all created for you. You don't have to figure out. You don't have to argue about balls and strikes or anything like think. that. You, you don't have to think. You don't have, all you can learn in that game is baseball. Uh-huh. Maybe you also are learning something about competition, trying to win. Very different from the other game. Nobody in that pickup game. Everybody's trying to do their best, given what the rules are. You know, the guy batting with left-handed with the broomstick, he's trying to bat as well as he can left-handed with the broomstick, right? right. And, and everybody's trying to do their best. You're, you cheer wildly if your team scores a point, but in the end, nobody even keeps track of, usually even keeps track of what the score is. By the next day, certainly nobody. Nobody cares. There's no trophy on the line. There's no parents there. It's like my self-worth impress. isn't attached to whether so, I win or lose anything. So you... You are doing something for the pure joy of doing it. In the process, you are learning lots of stuff. You're learning some physical skills, but more important than that, you're learning social skills. You're learning how to get along with people. You are acquiring the kinds of abilities that will really help you lead a successful adult life. You're learning how, you know, you can't have a good marriage if you can't pay attention to whether your partner is having fun or not, right? Whether your partner is, are you annoying your partner at this point or not? Some people can't tell the difference, right? But when you're playing, you have to learn how to tell that difference because otherwise your partner 
is going to quit. So that's the first characteristic. Second characteristic, somewhat closely related to the first, is that it's intrinsically motivated. You're not doing it for some reward outside of itself. Okay. So now in some sense, this is what, this distinguishes to some degree children's play from what I would call playful adult work. <laughs> because if you are, if you have a job, you have to pay some attention to the results. You have to pay some attention to the consequences. And you're doing it partly to make, to make a living. There's no question about what that plays a role. But the degree to which when you are involved in that activity, you're not thinking about the reward. You're thinking about the process. You're thinking about and enjoying what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So in play, again, this difference between that I can again use this, this difference between a pickup baseball game and a, and a little league game. In the pickup game, there's no trophy on the line. Nobody's keeping records. It's not going to go on your resume. It's not going to. You know, your parents are not sitting there cheering you on the sidelines and bragging about how you, how well you did and so on and so forth. You're just doing it to have fun. You're focusing on the process of playing this game and having fun. To the degree that that ability can translate into adult work, that work becomes playful. You are doing – one way I put it is if you would continue let, – let's say you won the lottery and you no longer really had to work – when you continue on the job that you're doing, if you would continue on the job that you're doing or something like it, that means you've got a very playful attitude about your work. You like your work. You love your work. Right. You're happier doing your work than you would be not doing your work. If you would gladly quit, then that work is not play for you. That's not. You're only doing it for the extrinsic stuff. You're only doing you're it for only the results. You're only doing it for the extrinsic stuff. Yeah. So that's the second character. The third characteristic. <clears throat> You know, people talk about unstructured play, and I, what I argue is there's no such thing as unstructured play. Play is always structured, but it's structured by the players themselves. Play is not random activity. Play is not, play is not just goofing off. I okay. don't call that play. Play is where you are engaged in an activity that has structures guided by mental rules. And any kind of play, all the things that we call play among children are guided by mental rules. So, I mean, take, for example, imagine a couple of boys involved in what we would call rough and tumble play. It looks wild. They're chasing one another around. They're wrestling. They're pushing one another. They're swinging swords at one another, whatever it is they're doing, plastic swords or, or you know, or sponge ones or, or sticks, whatever it is they're doing, they're engaged in a play fight and it really looks wild and it's the kind of thing that adults often want to stop because it looks like a real fight. But in fact, it's the opposite of a real fight because although they are engaging in what superficially looks like fighting, the goal is the opposite. In a real fight, the goal is to, is to subdue the other person, to drive them away, to defeat them. In the play fight, the goal is for everybody to have fun, just as in any kind of play. Otherwise, your playmate is going to leave. So you're in the this is this is in some sense how men can be in close proximity with one another. You know, men don't generally, at least young men don't hug, right? I mean they but they can be in close proximity here and interacting in this play fight. And they're learning to be able to do that without really fighting, without really trying to dominate one another. And, and so you self-handicap. So the, so the point I want to make here about structure, about rules, is it looks unstructured in a sense superficially. 
But there are real rules here. No kicking, no biting, no no really hurting the other person. Mm-hmm. No, if you're the bigger and the stronger of the two, you self-handicap in some way to make it fair and fun. Um, no, so and the rules don't have to be stated. But if one of them violates the rules, the other one will clearly state, "Hey, no kicking. Right, right. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm out of here if you keep playing like that." So that, so you're, so ev- my point is, every time kids making a sand castle on the beach, they have in mind the kind of castle they want to build. They don't care about having the castle in the end, but they care about building the most beautiful castle. They can, even though it's going to be washed into the sea at the end of the day, they are, they are engaged in a very structured activity. They're not, they're not randomly piling up sand. I think one of the mistakes that adults make when they talk about, oh, we need more play in our lives. And I've been in, I've been in, a, in adult um, settings where, you know, uh, at play conferences and so on, where somebody gets up on the stage and says, okay, now we're all going to play something. First of all, as soon as somebody says we're all going to play something, it's not play because play <laughs> has to be come from the players, right? right. But secondly, the, 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 the implication of then what the thing is, is that so somehow acting silly or, you know, that that that's play, you know, hopping around on one leg or whatever it is, you know, yeah. you know, not that that's necessarily a bad thing to do, but play is often very, um, serious play is often, it's not always accompanied by smiles. It's not always accompanied by laughter. It's certainly if you look not at kids on a playground. There's tears really, sometimes. Watch, it's, watch it's, kids on a playground and they are in, if it's real play, they are often very intensely involved. They got a serious voice. Then the, Final characteristic of play, if it's fully play, and and again, this characterizes children's play more so than adult playful activities, but I think it's also, in a sense, present in adult playful activities, and whether it's your work or not, is that there's an element of imagination in it. There's always an element of creativity and imagination in play. A good part of adult life necessarily has to be responsible. We're responsible for taking care of our children. We're responsible for earning a living. If we have a job, we're responsible for doing that job well in the way that will satisfy the needs of the clients or our boss or however the work is structured. So the ends matter. And also it's not you can't imagine that you're completely separated from the real world because what you're doing in the end affects the real world. I'm a surgeon operating on people and, and uh, you know, and right. I, I can't get too far into an imagination. <laughs> I have to kind of keep the reality, this is a real person here and so on and so forth. Well, let me but, ask you something, because it seems like that's where play is threatening. To It seems like a threat, like there's been an actively, like we need to minimize these aspects of play because it's Right. trivial and it's a distraction from what's really important here. It seems like there when when we talk about play there's kind of an eye rolling of like who has time for that? That's that's frivolous, right? So but right. it also seems like play is a threat to maybe this ex, these extrinsic extrinsic motivations that we have to make money, to provide security, to make sure we look good in front of others and those types of things and play would get in the way of that. Is that right? Right. That's right. I mean, we worry about there are people, there are people who are um quite frankly, irresponsible adults. And we, we might look at them and we say, oh, they're just playing, you know, they're not, they haven't mm-hmm. taken life seriously. And they're, and as a, you know, and they're, they're not, they're not doing the right things by, right. 
in terms of being responsible adults. And we've all sort of grown up hearing stories like the ant and the grasshopper and the ant stores food for the winter and the grasshopper just hops around happily and doesn't store food, you know, so. And then he's not prepared for the, for the, for the problems. Yeah. So, so I think that there's two things I want to say here about, the first is, as I was talking about that to the degree that we can bring a playful attitude to our work, but while at the same time recognizing that we have to do the work well, and I think we actually do the work better when we have a playful attitude towards it in those other senses. We're doing we're doing work that is meaningful to us, that we love to do. You know, and and, and that can be two things. I mean, one, for somebody who's not, who, whose work is not right now meaningful, there's two ways to make it meaningful. One is to leave it and find some other work that would be more meaningful, something that figure out what you really like to do and try to and get a job doing that. Or can you take a different attitude about the work you're doing? Is there a different way to think about that work? Is there a different way of doing that work? Well, it seems like that if we if we've been in this mindset of always jumping through the hoops and always having to do something right. for this extrinsic reward, then we won't give ourselves permission to simply play. It, it has to be for you know. It's going to be I, the guys that I work with. They're like, I can't give myself time. I can't give myself permission for that because it's not going to, it's going to take time away from family. It's going to take time away from my work. And those are threats, right? And, but I don't think they understand that the, the dangers or the downfall of when we don't play. And you've covered this a bit. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what happens to children when they don't play. What happens to even some of the, the animals that have, you know, where, that you've right. studied that, that, that don't play? What are the, because right. I, I don't think that we really understand that some of the things we're experiencing are, are not because we need to work harder and do more and right. have more extrinsic stuff. It's because we're, we've cut out play in our lives. So can you describe that? You know, the primary thing that happens when you don't play is you become depressed. Um, the, um, the, a very famous uh, play researcher, Brian Sutton Smith, who died a year or two ago, um, he said the opposite of play is not work, it's depression. Um, I don't uh, say that because the grammar doesn't quite work for me, but I would say that the opposite, or I would say the absence of play is depression. Taking away play leads to depression, and that's clear in children. Uh, a life without play, think of it, a life without play, that's a pretty depressing thought. You know, isn't, isn't in some sense, you know, it, it really means a life without without the sense of doing what you really want to do, right. but without the sense of self-control, without... The truth of the matter is, you know, what some of my writing is looking kind of at the historical changes over the last several decades as play has gone down, as we have created a world in which children are less and less free to go out and play, depression and also anxiety, which is very closely related to depression, have gone up. The rates of depression and anxiety now by uh, objective measures based on clinical questionnaires given in unchanged form over the decades among school-age children and among young adults is now somewhere between eight and ten times what it was in the 1950s. Eight and ten times. Eight and ten times. The suicide rate among school-age children is now six times what it was in the 1950s. Wow. And to me, there's no mystery as to why. When I was a kid in the 1950s, 
most of our time was playing. We spent more time playing than we spent in school. We had school year was shorter. The school day was short, was shorter. We had two full hours of play during the school day in elementary school. This was in the 1950s. Um, we had uh, we rarely we we had no homework in elementary school. So the period of time after school and all summer long and on weekends. We were out playing. There was a little bit of adult, you know, Little League had been invented, but was not a big deal. And even Little League, it was not something your parents drove you to. You went there yourself. And so there was still a lot of self-control in that, you Mm -hmm. know. And so, and we did not have this thing where um, parents were so afraid of uh, that you're going to be snatched away if if you're out there unprotected by somebody. So from age five on, most kids were free to just go out and play with other kids. And now you take that away. And in addition to that, you put people into what's almost always a competitive situation. And school is competitive. The, the activities you're put into are competitive. You're given these messages that somehow if you fall behind, you know, there are literally children, I, I, teenagers, even college students, I hear from many of them, they believe their life is going to come to an end if they get a B <laughs> in something, right? <laughs> that they're going to be homeless because they're not going to make it into the most prestigious college. And if they don't make it into college, life has ended. It's I mean, over. Truly, we have, we have convinced people of that. <laughs> and there are parents who are convinced of that. And I, I hear from... I hear from uh, from young people all the time, of course life is stressful, they say. We've got to get A's. We've got to do this and that. They, I've, I've published research showing that's not true. Even by the conventional measures of, um, of income at age 40, there's no – you control for other things, and there's no relationship between what college you went to and how well you're doing. Of course, I saw one of your articles that said that, that, that and I just want to underline that. So you're saying that this whole huge pressure to get into schools and get into a good school, but it all in the end, from the studies, it kind of washes out. It doesn't really it matter. Wash, it washes out. It doesn't really matter. You know, the, you, you might have, you know, there are some advantages. If you go to a prestigious school, there are probably going to be more high power recruiters there to try to recruit you right at the beginning. But you go to a lesser school and what you have is the advantage. You stand out there and the professors get to know you and they recommend you and so on and so forth. So it balances out. And the truth of the matter is they're very well done studies by very well controlled studies, which I refer to in one of my recent blog posts, uh, showing that if you match for other things, the socioeconomic class you're coming to, coming from, you you match for um, – to the degree that you can for the pers- for for sort of individual motivation and you look at the basically if you could do basically statistically you create what would be comparable to identical twins and you put one of them in <laughs> Ivy League or a, that kind of school and mm-hmm. the other one goes to the local state university they do equally well in the end on average wow. in, by every measure but one is, but but there's a mindset here that we're buying into is, hey, we need to remove place so that we can prepare you for this opportunity, and by doing so, we're increasing the likelihood that you're going to be depressed. We're decreasing. We're, right. we're excuse me. We're increasing the likelihood you're going to be depressed. We're increasing the likelihood you're going to be anxious. We're increase. We're decreasing your ability to to have self directed 
time right. and know, learn how to learn how to experiment, learn how to solve problems, learn how to think creatively. The things that'll actually help you in life. We're going to remove right. play from from that, that. That that that's the lab essentially for you to learn those skills. And so you mm-hmm. go into a world where you're less confident, less brave, less right. feeling like you're in control. And so no, no wonder why we feel kind of empty and scared all the times because we don't really know how to solve our own problems essentially without another hoop being in front of us. Right. That's, that's right. And, and this is becoming more and more true. It's more, you know, that I'm, I hear from college professors, I hear from employers who are employing uh, new, gra- new graduates, whether it's graduates of high school or college, uh, who are saying that increasingly um, the people they're employing are insisting that they be told exactly how to do things, exactly what to do, that they be led all the way. You can't just say, here's a problem, solve it, <laughs> right? They got to have A, B, C, D, E. That, that's what the, the employer wants, somebody to just solve the problems, you know? And, and what's interesting, you know, we are now living in a world where probably, you know, aside from knowing how to get along well with other people and cooperating, the next most important skill is how to think out of the box, how to think creatively, how to how to solve problems that nobody else has figured right. out how to solve. Right. You know, we've got we've got we don't need people who have a lot of information in their head. We've got Google for that, right? Right. We don't we don't need people who can do routine work. We've you know we've got computers, we've got robots for that. That's right. why we've got an un- unemployment problem. You know. We need people who can do the kinds of things that Google and robots can't do, and yet we're running our schools even more like we're producing Googles and robots, yes. right? We're produ- even more so. We've removed the creative stuff from school. We've removed play, which is always creative, which is where children exercise more than anything else their creativity. So to me, it's not surprising that I find that these people that I'm studying who are among the relatively few people who are not going to school. They've found this, their parents are supporting this way out of school where they are, they are directing their own activities growing up. They're doing very well in the economy. They're finding, you know, they're creating jobs that fit. Many of them are entrepreneurs, but may, and and if they're not entrepreneurs, they're start, they're involved with other people and in, in um, in activities, well, in, in some senses, as entrepreneur too, and in, in uh, small companies where they have a role, they have a real role in directing the company, and they're flexible. They're not afraid of learning new things. They like learning new things. They're not burned out about learning, and so they fit very well in this modern economy. You can't, you know, when. Uh, my dad, you know, could have the same career his entire life um, because, uh, you know, he was a he was a linotype operator, and of course, there's no such thing as a linotype anymore. But for, through most of his life, until towards the end of his working life, linotypes were replaced, and then right. he was ready to retire. But people who are today, you cannot. Nobody can expect to be doing the same thing their whole life. <laughs> you're going to have to be adaptive, and right. and you're going to have to be able to, in some sense, create your own path through life. There's not, you know, whether we think of this as fortunate or unfortunate, it's no longer the case that there is loyalty to the company, or companies are loyal to you, or you've got labor unions that are going to protect you and your job. You're going to have to be able to figure things out yourself and figure out how to make a living and how to make a living, ideally, in a way that I'm enjoying making this yes. living. 
Well, yeah. people who grow up, we people who grow up practicing that as young people are much better at it. Oh yeah. But not surprisingly, than people who grow up in this uh, conventional school system where they are sort of trained. Look, if uh, as long as I do what I'm told to do then I am going to make it through the next hoop. And so my job is to do what I'm told to do. Now they're suddenly out in the real world and the boss wants them to figure out what it is to do. They don't know what to do. How to solve the problem and they don't know how to do that. Yeah, they're looking for, tell me what to do. They want the formula. They want the paint by numbers. They want set it and forget it. That whole kind of thing of just give me the next kind of goal to run through instead of this creative ability to respond to whatever's happening and and come up with solutions as they come. And then also understand that it's never really over. Like I think it's that part of us that's just wanting things to be over because we hate the process. We hate, we don't like it. We just want to be done with it because it's such a drag and a dream. But if we're in play, we're enjoying it. We want more of that process. We invite it. We're not seeking the finish line or the summit of the mountain because we're, we're in, we, it's feeding us. It's, it's invigorating us. So um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'd love it. It gives me more permission as if I needed more permission, but it's just been more encouragement and more permission to go out and play do things just be even though they're not directly related to family or work or that kind of right. pressure that we can put on ourselves. Um, right. And so I, I hope this is going to help the listener to get out there and play some more too. Um, uh, Peter Gray, his book is Free to Learn. There's several TED Talks that you can check out online as well. And, and then he's also got a blog at psychologytoday.com as well as his Facebook page. Peter Gray, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. I've enjoyed it also. If these interviews are helping you, then please visit The New Man on iTunes and leave us a positive review so others can discover the show more easily. Thanks for listening.